All right, we've been reading the Lord's Prayer, emphasizing that orientation towards forgiving because we've been forgiven. So I've put it in uh, the New Living Translation there for you to emphasize the sin aspect of that. In our Christian Standard Bible Translation that I usually use, um, it uses the term debt and debtors, but we don't really think about someone who's you know, offended us as a debtor against us. We think of them as someone who sinned against us, and we need to remember to, to forgive. So let's read this as a prayer and as a training of our hearts together. Our Father in heaven, may your name be kept holy. May your kingdom come soon. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today the food we need. And forgive us our sins as we have forgiven those who sin against us. And don't let us yield to temptation, but rescue us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Now, last time I mentioned that anytime you pray this virtually, by the moment you're done, God has answered a lot of that prayer. But today I want to point out that for this prayer to be fully answered, you have to participate in it. For what you said to be true, you actually have to participate. For as we have forgiven those who sin against us requires us to forgive. Um, so we, we want to be oriented in that way. So in this lesson, this is our second to last lesson, we're going to talk about granting forgiveness and extending forgiveness. And then next week in our last lesson, I'm going to just give some additional comments. I've really appreciated this book, Forgive, by Tim Keller. And I think that if I wish he had one more chapter about the context of relationships. So when we talk about forgiving as absorbing the debt, absorbing the offense, are we obligated to absorb the debt in every scenario? When someone hits your car, do you say, I'm not going to make an insurance claim against their insurance on this because I'm going to forgive them. I'm going to absorb the debt. We need to think maybe a little bit more about the context of our relationships. But today I want to just follow his chapter more generally about granting and extending forgiveness. Um, you'll have to remember too that we're distinguishing between internal forgiveness and external forgiveness as two stages of forgiveness. In the previous lessons, we said internal forgiveness is always required of Jesus's followers. External forgiveness or reconciliation, restoration of relationship might not always be possible. We'll get into that more this morning. But in Luke 17, 3 and 5, Jesus teaches that to be his disciples is to live a life of perpetual forgiveness. Jesus says, be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and comes back to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. And then the apostles responded, probably in the way that we all respond, Lord, increase our faith. We don't have the kind of faith to be that kind of forgiving. Uh, most of us can easily identify situations in which we think that it's probably unfair for Jesus to ask us, much less command us, to forgive other people. Um, we probably recognize our lack of faith. We don't believe that forgiving somebody is the right course of action, even though Jesus just told us that it is. Uh, 
yet Jesus enables us to obey what he commands. Um, He gives us the resources to obey. We've talked a lot about those resources, primarily the resource of God's forgiveness of us that enables us to forgive others. But interestingly enough, Keller points out, uh, Jesus fronts this command to forgive with a different command, which is to be on guard or to watch yourself. And typically, when somebody sins against us, we don't think we need to pay attention to ourselves. We're paying attention to them and the harm that they've caused us. So it's counterintuitive when someone's harmed us for us to firstly pay attention to ourselves. But Jesus wants us to look closely at ourselves when we've been hurt by other people. Because underneath that instruction is the truth that it's extremely easy to develop an unforgiving spirit and not to see it in ourselves. So when we're so concerned about the sin of the other person, we can unknowingly harbor bitterness and sin in ourselves. You can read about that in Hebrews 12, 15. But it's hard for us to admit just how angry and bitter we actually become toward those who wrong us, especially in situations where we didn't contribute anything to the problem, where we've been harmed and we, haven't, we, we are pretty sure we didn't bring anything to the table. Uh, Keller says that to maintain our image of ourselves as good people, we deny how embittered we are. I've forgiven, you say, meaning you aren't actively seeking revenge, but I can't forget, you say, meaning that you're rooting for the person's downfall and that you're still filled with resentment. I think most of us like to act as if we are not the kind of person who holds a grudge, but that's why Jesus tells us to pay attention to ourselves because most of us are the kind of people who hold grudges. Uh, When Jesus instructs us to pay attention to ourselves when we're wronged, it means that we should assume that we're more resentful and less forgiving and more controlled by what people have done to us than we think. Do you agree with that? I, I, I think for the most part, that's probably true. Sometimes we really know when we're harboring bitterness and resentment and we're willing the wrong of another person in response to their wrong done to us. But I think sometimes we just try to forget about it and act as if we're a really charitable person when we haven't really dealt with what's going on in our hearts. Keller writes, unless you forgive deliberately, thoroughly and with all the help Christ offers, your anger will defile you, as Hebrews says. How? Because when, in, okay, he's going into some wordplay here. I think it's great. Maybe you don't like wordplay in English history, but I think this is a helpful way of thinking about it, even though it's not strictly in the Bible. He says, when we harbor anger and wrath in our hearts, it changes us. So he explores the etymology of the English word wrath, connecting it to the Anglo-Saxon root word that also gives us the word wraith. You know, the wraiths depicted in the Lord of the Rings, these shadowy figures that are just full of death. And uh, they're restless spirits. And as he says, as legend has it, wraiths or ghosts stay in place where something was done to them and they can't get over it or stop reliving it. Using this wordplay, he concludes, if you don't deal with your wrath through forgiveness, Wrath can make you a wraith, turning you slowly but surely into a restless spirit, into someone who's controlled by the past, someone who's haunted. I think that's a great imagery and a good, good wordplay recognition. If you harbor wrath against other people, 
it does change you. It empties you of the grace and love and life that God instills in us, and it turns you into less of a human, into a wraith, a restless spirit who allows the sins of the past to travel into the present, never being able to move on. Um, what does it look like for wrath to turn you into a wraith? Here are some examples you, can, you need to think about in your own life. Have you allowed this to happen? Have you allowed yourself to be less like the true human Jesus and more like a wraith because you're harboring hurt and bitterness towards somebody? Uh, here are some, some examples, though. He says, if someone wrongs you and you nurture self-pity, it turns into entitlement. And when you don't get what you feel you're entitled to, like good treatment or others being extra nice to you or giving you a break, you become both entitled and uh, restless, joyless, and dissatisfied. Uh, so, you know, you had a hard day at home, so then at work, you think everybody should be nicer to you, and when they're not, you get mad at them again. You, do you see how that works? Um, if you, second, if you can't forgive the person who broke up with you, you may end up adopting a cynical and negative attitude towards romantic relationships, yours and others. Um, you'll be unable to rejoice when others enter into romantic relationships and unable to open yourself up to love and be loved. Uh, or on the other hand, you might now idolize the next relationship, driven by the bitterness left over from the last one in trying to ensure that you never experience that wrong against you or hardship ever again. Um, that idolization presents as love, but behind the mask, it's unforgiveness and selfishness. Um, it's looking at other people's marriages and not being happy for them when they appear to have a deep and flourishing marriage because yours is struggling. Um, if you can't forgive your spouse, it's going to flow into the way that it relates to other people. Um, if you can't forgive your parents for their failures, it may taint your relationship with other authority figures. When you have children, you may overcompensate, doing either more than or the direct opposite of what your parents did to you. Your parenting will become about you and the hurt you received rather than about what your children actually need, particularly because their needs may be different than your own. So instead of being fully present in a full parent for your child, you're living as a ghost in the past hurt by what your parents maybe did to you. Um, you know, this is something that I've had to work through in my life. In high school, I had a journal with a list of everything my dad did that I would never do if I ever had children. And I ended up working a summer at this camp, and this guy preached a sermon that was really helpful. And, I, and he helped me see that part of repentance for me and forgiveness included just throwing that thing away, not holding on to that list. And... I think the reality is you've probably sensed this yourself if you have kids or you've seen it with other parents. You, you can kind of tell what their childhood was like based on how they're overcompensating with their own kids. And I, I think we can end up harming our kids by not forgiving our parents. That cycle continues. So these are just some practical things that Keller lays out, but really we all have to think about our own lives and the way that our harbored hurt and lack of forgiveness may just sow more seeds of hurt and less forgiveness. Um, there's a phrase, the guy who I was talking about at this camp would always say, hurting people hurt people, or hurt people hurt other people. And 
the primary way that Jesus gives us to heal through hurt actually comes through forgiveness. Um, and if we can't forgive, we'll keep hurting. And if we're hurting, it's almost inevitable that we'll hurt others. Um, we live, he says, in a world where canceling, ghosting, and insults are the norm. You'll experience snubs on a regular basis, and in some cases, you'll experience real injustice. So how are you going to deal with it? How will you live in the full new humanity of Jesus rather than becoming a, a wraith? How are you going to keep it all from turning you into a wraith controlled by the past? You must forgive and forgive well. Okay, so that's, that's why we've got to forgive on just one level. You know, not just because we're commanded to, but because of what actually occurs in our life. So he gives them three parts of internal forgiveness. Um, we've talked about these in the first lesson, but things are kind of summarized here. We have to remember that while reconciliation or external forgiveness may not be possible in this broken world, Jesus' command to forgive in Mark 11:25 requires internal forgiveness. Even if the offending party never repents or never admits wrong or never wants to pursue mutual restoration. In Mark eleven twenty five, 25, Jesus says, forgive immediately. That he, he's there is talking about what Keller calls internal or heart forgiveness. And it involves three steps or three aspects. Identifying with the wrongdoer, inwardly paying the debt, and willing good for the wrongdoer. That's what internal forgiveness looks like. So let's look at each of these. Step one, identify with the wrongdoer. When someone hurts you, when someone sins against you, your first step is to identify with the wrongdoer. Uh, when Jesus gives the instruction to forgive others and to love your neighbor, these sorts of things, he's implying that you and your neighbor are exactly the same. Um, that's a crucial truth when we're wronged because it's easy to lose sight of the sameness that we share with other people. Our hearts tend to make caricatures of other people, making their offense the dominating feature about them. Instead of seeing them as a whole person, we only see them in the sin that they committed against us. We begin to think of them one-dimensionally, dimensionally, in terms of what they've done against you, um, viewing them as a one-dimensional villain, while at the same time, you continue to think of yourself as a three-dimensional, complex human being. So when, when she lies to you, she sinned against you and she's a liar. But when you lie, well, there, there are circumstances and it's complicated and you had a good reason for that lie, or maybe you had no other option. Um, when you do verbal violence to somebody, you, you just have to consider everything else that happened in your day. But when someone hurts you with their words, they're just a mean person. Uh, do you see what we do? We give ourselves a lot of grace and compassion and understanding, and we understand that we're more than that one act that we committed. But when we look at other people, we tend to look at them only as that one thing, whether it's a tiny snub or a true act of injustice. We instinctively grant ourselves the grace to see beyond our offenses, but fail to do so to others. And as a result, we justify ourselves and position ourselves as morally superior to those who wrong us. What is more anti-gospel than that? When we look down at the wrongdoer, it does feel like a small victory against them. 
when we can think we're better than them and look down on them, it leads to self-righteousness. And that self-righteousness in the heart is always deadly. We can't relate to the offender or offer forgiveness if we're adopting a posture of superiority. Um, instead, we're going to hold on to resentment. Um, Keller quotes this guy, Miroslav Volf, who I think was a Serbian guy who was like has a family line of like really bad treatment in their national history, a lot of violence done, and he's writing to his community. Or maybe he's Croatian and the Serbians said the violence. I can't remember. All I know is it was like worse than most of us will ever experience, and he's writing to these people. He says this, forgiveness flounders because I exclude the enemy from the com community of humans, even as I exclude myself from the community of sinners. So we can't forgive because we exclude ourselves from the community of sinners and we exclude our enemies from the community of humans. But he writes, no one can be in the presence of the God of the crucified Messiah for long without overcoming this double exclusion. When one knows that the torturer will not externally triumph over the victim, one, that should be eternally, I think, one is free to discover that person's humanity and imitate God's love for him. And when one knows that God's love is greater than all sin, one is free to see oneself and to rediscover one's own sinfulness. We sometimes need to rediscover our own sinfulness when we're looking at the sinfulness of other people. This gets us back to Jesus's command to pay attention to ourselves. But the first step when you're needing to grant forgiveness to, to somebody is to identify with the wrongdoer, to recognize that just as you are not in totality the sum of the sin that you commit, neither are they only marked by an only to the very core of who they are, the sin that they've committed against you. We must relate to and identify with the wrongdoer, and often that involves rediscovering our own sinfulness. Step number two, to forgive, we need to absorb the debt. To inwardly pay the debt of the wrongdoer yourself, rather than making him pay for it. Of the very word forgive means to remit or to cancel. You're remitting the debt. You're, you're owning the wrong that's done against you instead of making them own it. It's to refuse to make the person who owes you pay and therefore to pay or assume the cost yourself. And here's the logic. When you're wronged, the perpetrator owes you a debt. And that debt might be literal, like the cost of a broken object or financial, but more often it's relational or um, emotional or reputational. Um, the cost of that wrongdoing does not go into thin air. When someone gossips about you and harms their reputation, someone's got to bear the cost of that wrongdoing. Um, are you going to make them bear the cost by now tearing down their reputation? Or are you going to own the cost by not making them pay? Um, th th as a side note, we often don't have a good way of balancing the scales. We can try to make them pay what we think is fair, but often we just find revenge instead and, and we commit the same sin. But either the wrongdoer or someone else might pay the debt. But to forgive is to, and I know this is a split infinitive, is to not exact repayment. It's to deny oneself revenge, to refuse to even the score. So to forgive is to 
crush that desire to give to get even and to give to the perpetrator um, instead a gift that they don't deserve by absorbing their debt against you. So if you're going to forgive someone and we're commanded to, you've got to crush the desire to get even. And here, you're truly walking in Christ's footsteps. Forgiveness is always a form of voluntary suffering that brings about a greater good. And because forgiveness has to be offered in ongoing situations, it requires a long suffering. That, you know, when you read long suffering in the Bible, that's what you should think. Suffering over time. Forgiveness is essentially suffering over time. Um, forgiveness is always expensive to, f to the forgiver, but the benefits, at least within your own heart, and at best in the restoration of the relationship in a witness to the power of the gospel outweigh the cost. So even though it's costly to forgive, even if you can never have a restored relationship with that person, even if they never repent, you will experience the fruit of forgiveness in your heart that outweighs the cost. And then in other situations, you can experience the full fruit of a restored relationship. But whatever the case might be, it's a witness to the power of the gospel and that outweighs the cost of the debt that we own. Um, later, we'll be reminded that it's possible to absorb the debt and to seek justice. So when I talk about absorbing the debt here, I'm not saying that there should not be consequences for the wrongdoer. We'll get to that more. And, but what's important is that this internal act of forgiveness is the prerequisite to pursuing justice. If you don't first forgive before you seek justice, then you're only going to seek revenge. That will always happen. Um, and when you confront the wrongdoer, they can tell if you've forgiven them or not, and if you want justice and restoration, or if you want uh, vengeance. If you go to someone who wronged you and you confront them, they can tell if you're harboring a lack of forgiveness. They can tell if you're really just trying to be morally superior to them, or if you really just want a renewed relationship. We know this in our marriages, if you're married, you know this in your friendships, in your families, with your coworkers. People can tell if you've forgiven or not. And if you haven't forgiven, if what you really want is vengeance, it's going to shut the whole thing down and make it worse. So forgiveness is not the opposite of seeking true justice, it's the precondition for it. Regardless of whether or not justice can be obtained in this life, Jesus' teaching in Mark eleven twenty five indicates that we must forgive the wrongdoer before we know how they'll respond, before we know if we'll see justice done, before we know if they're going to repent. Our act of forgiveness and, and do, Christian duty to forgive is not dependent on their obligation to repent. Uh, the parable of the unforgiving servant in Matthew 18 teaches that we owe it to God to forgive others as graciously as he's forgiven us. And Jesus bore the costs of our debt against God before we had the opportunity to respond. Of course, we do need to remember that while forgiveness can and really must be granted in a moment, it's still an inward process for the forgiver that can take time. So forgiving is a process, it's not a one-time event. And if you think of forgiving as a one-time event, you're, you're missing it. Um, it's a process that happens over time. 
There's this guy, Dan Hamilton, who gives a really good analogy for picturing this forgiveness over time and absorbing the cost of the wrong done to us. He puts it this way. Forgiveness can be like buying an expensive gift for someone on credit. The gift is received in a moment when you say to the person, I forgive you, and enjoyed from there on by the forgiven person. But the giver of the gift will continue to pay unseen, and that's an important piece of this, to pay unseen until the debt is fully satisfied. Forgiveness is more than a matter of refusing to hate someone. It's also a matter of choosing to demonstrate love and acceptance of the offender. Forgiveness is to deal with our emotions by denying ourselves the dark pleasures of venting them or fondling them in our minds. Pain is a consequence of sin and there's no easy way to deal with it. Wood, nails, and pain are the currency of forgiveness, the love that heals. That's forgiveness. It's painful and it's costly and it, it's a reality that works itself out over time but it's a denial of the dark pleasure of venting our emotions and fondling the hurt in our mind, replaying the hurt that somebody did to us so we can experience it afresh and resolutely maintain a bitterness and offense against them. Have you ever done that? I've done that. You know, we, we can harbor the hurt, but forgiveness involves dealing with the pain of sin, and there's no easy way to do it. To truly forgive, then, all counterfeit forms of forgiveness have to be rooted out. Um, here are a handful of counterfeit forms of forgiveness. These pretend to be forgiveness, and we might convince ourselves we've forgiven, but we haven't. Excusing. Excuses eliminate the need for forgiveness. So while there might be good explanations that help us determine whether there's a real debt to begin with, simply excusing a genuine offense is a poor substitute for forgiveness. So if someone comes to you and they repent of something wrong they've done against you, don't blow it off. Don't excuse it. Say, oh, you didn't do anything wrong. Allow them to actually repent and allow yourself to actually forgive. Because whether we realize it or not, when we cover up hurts with the you know, veil of excuses, they still add up over time and they still actually do influence things. That hurt doesn't disappear because of the excuse. We might be able to ignore it, but we need to acknowledge wrong that's actually done so we can actually forgive. Second, denying or whitewashing. That's a substitute. Forgiveness requires truth-telling. Um, it's a refusal to pretend the offense did not happen. Costly forgiveness includes taking the full measure of the debt and paying the price. And if the offense is denied, minimized, or whitewashed, the possibility of costly forgiveness is curtailed. Don't pretend like the hurt didn't happen to you. Call it out for all that it is. That's what God did with our sin. He identifies our sins so that costly forgiveness can be given. And in our relationships and in our hurts and in the wrongs done to us, we shouldn't try to whitewash them. Call it what it is. Speak truly about it so you can actually take the full measure of the cost that you're going to pay as you forgive that wrong. Suspending judgment. Of true forgiveness is not transactional. Offering to forgive someone one time and then promising vengeance if the offense ever occurs again. I'll forgive you this time, but next time I won't. That's, that's not really forgiveness then. Uh, putting someone on probation or in relational purgatory is not forgiveness. Um, 
neither is weaponizing condescending mercy. Uh, so the off there, there are offers of forgiveness that are just virtue signaling. It's just self-righteousness. It's not forgiveness. It's a form of revenge. It's, it's setting yourself up as morally superior and speaking words of forgiveness and so describing the wrong the person did just to make them feel bad while you're still harboring that hurt and you have no intention of owning it, of, of giving costly forgiveness. Um, abandoning justice. I think this is an important one and it might surprise you. So I'm quoting Keller in full here. Um, abandoning justice is not forgiveness. That's pretending the wrong didn't happen. Justice is calling the wrongdoer to admit the sin to God and to the wronged and to bear whatever penalty either God's law or human law requires. Justice is pursued for God's sake, for the other potential victim's sake, and even for the perpetrator's sake. It's never loving to allow someone to go on sinning in a grievous way. People tend to either seek personal revenge in the belief that that is justice or not to seek any justice at all and call it forgiveness. Forgiveness is not um, abandoning the pursuit of justice. Uh, so I, I want to give I, a, a situation that it, it's hard to know how to speak into these things. But there's somebody who I know who was abused sexually by a family member. That family member just got engaged. This person has never pursued justice. And who are the other potential victims now? I, I, it's hard to speak into it because I'm not in that situation. And, and these are really challenging and complicated things. But if we learn anything from the right recognition of the sexual abuse that's happened in a lot of places, churches, schools, athletic places otherwise, when the abused person is told, you need to forgive and forget that happened, all that does is allow that offender to be free to keep offending. It makes other victims. Um, I understand that it can be hard for someone, especially when they've been violated in a really personal way to pursue justice publicly. But I think forgiveness demands that. Um, and whatever the case might be when those situations are dealt with bit by bit, as a church, we need to commit to never say, if something like that happens here, the Christian thing is to do is to pretend it didn't happen. That's not the Christian thing. The Christian thing to do is to pursue justice. And that's true in these situations, but it's true in other situations as well. Um, if a guy is beating his wife, you should never hear from the church, wife, just put up with it. You should just be slapped. You should be okay with being slapped around a little bit because you need to honor your husband. That's not honoring your husband because you're not helping him be an honorable person. He's being a dishonorable person, and you need to call the police and forgive him. Okay, so abandoning justice is not forgiveness, even though some people would would say that it is. Even though some people would say, "Forgive, forget. Don't don't allow there to be any consequences." That's a wrong view of forgiveness. Uh, and then here's another related one. Immediate trust. Genuine, authentic, internal forgiveness does not demand an immediate trust towards the offending person. Forgiveness does not mean that we have to immediately resume the relationship with the wrongdoer at the level it was before. Until a person shows evidence of true change, we should not trust the person. So internal forgiveness is not dependent on that. External forgiveness that we'll talk about later really is. 
Um, if there's not repentance, you can't have a restored relationship, nor should you force it. Um, to immediately retrust a person with sinful habits could actually be enabling him or her to sin, again, in the same way. Um, trust must be restored, but the speed at which this occurs depends on the response of the offender to the correction. Okay? So someone might tell you, you need to treat me exactly the same as you did before if you're really forgiving me. That's not true. Um, there's a distinction to be made between reconciliation, restored trust, and the internal forgiveness that's demanded in a moment. If you can't keep those separate, then you're going to say, then I cannot forgive until that person repents, and you won't forgive, and, and you're not going to experience the fruit and the benefits of forgiveness. All right. Step three, will their good. So you need to identify with the wrongdoer. Two, you need to absorb the debt. Third, you need to will their good. Forgiveness involves willing the good of the wrongdoer in imitation of Jesus who appealed to God to forgive his executioners. He acknowledged that they were sinning, otherwise they wouldn't need forgiveness, but he also sympathetically observes their inability to fully understand what they're doing. Um, Keller says that a good test for knowing whether or not you've forgiven someone is whether or not you can will their good, if you can rejoice when good things happens to, happen to them if you want them to experience a good life. Um, so, um, <laughs> ah, I can't give that illustration. Imagine a situation where somebody um, was hurt deeply by someone who broke up with them. Like, and they were, they were sinned against along the way. But later on, they happened to be in the same place where that person now is getting married. Can, can they be part of this same church and be happy for this person who broke up with them and hurt them in the process because they've forgiven them or will they sit there with their arms crossed angry? Do you, you know, that's, that's a good test. Have you forgiven that person or not? Are you still living in the hurt of the past? Um, when your parents were awful parents to you, but you see the way that they are treating your, your nieces and nephews, and you see them being the grandparent that they sh the, in the way they should have been the parent to you, can you be happy for that kid and for your parents? If not, you probably have not forgiven them. Do you see how it's a good test case if you can will their good? It doesn't mean you have to engage them because maybe they haven't repented. Maybe there's not trust built. And Definitely, if someone broke up with you and now they're marrying someone else, you can't restore that relationship to what it was previously. So, but, so you may not be able to engage in any of those levels, but internal forgiveness involves willing their good, wanting them to flourish and not to experience harm. Um, these three steps are intensely difficult. They really are. But Keller kind of doubled down here and says, forgiveness is not primarily and originally an emotion. Uh, forgiveness is granted often a good while before it's felt, not felt before it's granted. It's a promise not to exact the price of sin from the person who hurt you. It's a promise we make to keep despite our feelings. And if you wait to feel it before you grant it, you'll never grant it. You'll be in an anger prison. So it's a practice even more than it's a feeling though eventually it may become a feeling. 
Um, C.S. Lewis talks about this in Mere Christianity when he says, stop worrying about if you actually love somebody, start doing acts of love towards them, and eventually you'll find that you love them. Stop worrying about, you know, can I authentically forgive without feeling forgiving? Stop thinking that way. Instead, grant forgiveness and then allow your emotions to catch up to you as that forgiveness reaches deeply into your heart. But that's really, really hard. Um, so work to become aware of the ways that you are inclined to exact payment from the offender. Um, I won't read these three words of specific counsel for how to avoid harboring hurt, but Keller in these bulleted marks give three ways of speaking, speaking with the other person, adopting a warm, um, open posture towards them. And again, this depends on the degree of repentance. Uh, when speaking with others, not um, dragging them through the dirt, but um, actually dealing with the matter. And then finally, speaking to ourselves, not bringing the wrong up to ourselves over and over again. I think a lot of us can do that. We can keep remembering and keep bringing it up to ourselves. We talk to ourselves through it, and that shouldn't happen. That's not forgiveness. Okay, so we've got only 10 min eight minutes now to talk through extending forgiveness external. I, uh, I'm okay with spending more time on internal forgiveness because you must forgive internally before it can happen externally. And internal dependence or forgiveness is not dependent on the other person. The extension of external forgiveness and reconciliation kind of is. So it immediately, forgiveness immediately becomes more complicated at this external stage because there are way more factors to consider. Internal forgiveness is a command from God. Okay. Um, to summarize, Jesus and Paul both talk about this. They both, Jesus associates anger towards other people with murder, and he commands us not to do that. We should not be angry. We should not harbor angerness. Uh, anger, angerness isn't a word, but we shouldn't harbor that either if it is a word. Um, Paul says things like, don't let the sun go down on your wrath. Neither, you know, they're, they're both just trying to get us to adopt a posture of quick forgiveness. Sometimes reconciliation is possible. Sometimes it isn't. Um, I, I'm just going to talk and, and kind of summarize the things here. Jesus, Jesus always puts the burden of reconciliation and on, on the person who was wronged, on his, on his disciples. So often we might think, I'm not going to pursue a restored relationship with this person until they finally see what they've done and until they come to me. But Jesus says, if someone sinned against you, go to them. Speak frankly with them about it. Confront them about this. And that's how you should pursue restoration. So Jesus' followers are the kind of people who take the initiative to pursue reconciliation. An imitation of the God who took initiative to pursue reconciliation with us. Um, so if you were wronged, don't wait until that other person somehow has a revelation that they wronged you most of the time, they probably don't even know that they did. Um, how many times have you talked to someone and been like, you know what, that was really hurtful when you did that. And they might say something like, I have no memory of that, honestly. And you've been living captivated by that hurt and they haven't even realized it. And you're waiting for them to circle back to you and apologize and they don't even know they need to. Jesus' disciples, 
always take the initiative for reconciliation. Now, again, I said there are more factors and it gets complicated if that person isn't repentant. Um, sometimes the best gesture we can have towards reconciliation is the pursuit of justice, um, which still involves confrontation. Though there are many situations in which it's not safe for a person to confront that. So think of um, the gymnast Rachel Den Hollander confronting the sexual abuser uh, Larry Nassar. It would not be good for her to set up a private meeting with that guy. So take all of these things, the wife who's being beat by her husband or whatever the case might be. When I'm talking about you, you need to take the initiative for reconciliation, I'm not saying go endanger yourself. Where there's no repentance and there's not safety, the best you can do towards reconciliation is probably the pursuit of justice and that involves other people. Um, but then when you've sinned against other people, Jesus says in those instances, you're also responsible for initiating reconciliation, to repent and to try to make the situation right. Um, I want to end then with this lesson with just five practices of reconciliation that he gives, and, and then we'll pick some of this up next week. But first, pray for the offending party, the less those who persecute you. When someone sins against you, instead of cursing them, instead of speaking words of condemnation against them in your heart or to other people, bless those who persecute you. Pray for them. Two, forgive them. Do not take revenge. So this is internal forgiveness. Um, number three, and again, all the caveats of safety and everything else, don't avoid them. Don't contribute to the hostility. Be kind, helpful, and respectful, open to reconciling the relationship. Uh, so when it comes to being a local church member, when someone's sinned against you, when you know maybe they gossiped about you or maybe they said something mean to you, don't do the American Christian thing of just go to, going to a different church. Fine, skipping, uh, not sitting on the same side as, of the auditorium as them because you don't ever want to run into them. Don't avoid them. Don't contribute to the hostility. Be warm and open, even as you speak truly about the wrong and pursue, hopefully, a reconciliation marked by repentance. Four, give them what they need to the degree that they allow. If there's an opportunity to serve the wrongdoer or meet his or her needs, do it. Um, but don't give the kind of help that enables their wrongdoing. So, but we can still show love and do acts of love to people who have wronged us. That's, this is all Romans 12. You know, we'll think about this at length next year when we finally get to that section of Romans. But when someone sins against you, don't withhold good from them. God is not withholding good from you when we, you've sinned against him. I'm saying you. This is true for me too, but it's true for all of us. Uh, five, do it humbly. Don't confront the wrongdoer for your sake, but for theirs. Why is it that we can engage in these practices of reconciliation, it's because God has demonstrated all of them ultimately in us, in, in Jesus, offering reconciliation to us. We can set vengeance aside because Jesus is the king who became a servant voluntarily for our sake so that we can stop acting like little kings and judges who exact vengeance and execute judgment on others. To forgive, to truly forgive and to truly love we must experience the love and forgiveness of God through Christ. And when that happens, we can pray, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing.
That's where we need to end here. We must forgive internally. That's a command and it's non-optional. We may have the opportunity to forgive externally. That is to pursue reconciliation of some kind. That's dependent on this situation and the other party. Um, next week, final lesson, we'll have some time for questions and or chasing down other things. I, I plan to talk only for like 25 minutes. And then if you have any case scenarios of thinly veiled in your own life maybe, um, or questions from anything in the class, bring them up, maybe help me out by shooting them to me in an email earlier in the week so I can think about them instead of just off the cuff. Uh, but we'll wrap up our forgiveness class next Sunday. All right, thanks.